All right, I want to invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Philippians chapter 2. This letter written by Paul as he sat in a jail cell. In chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, the Lord's Apostle says thus, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this word. We thank you for exalting Jesus, the victorious, so that at his name every knee should bow. We thank you for having given this mind which was his to us, that we can face the hardships and horrors of this life in faith, knowing that just as Christ rose victorious, we will share in his victory. We praise your holy name for this wondrous truth. We ask that even this morning, as we reflect upon his resurrection, that you would increase our faith, that we might be increasingly faithful. We ask this in his name. Amen. He is risen. Well, a well-placed, a socially well-placed reverend has said this, though. The meaning of Easter is more transcendent than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Whether you are Christian or not, through a commitment to helping others, we are able to save ourselves. That statement reveals a total and complete misunderstanding of everything about our faith. Everything about the Christian faith. And, and, and I recognize that when this man speaks of saving ourselves, he, he's referring to this life. And he's saying that the resurrection, the triumph of, of, of good over evil, the, the, the resurgence of hope amidst apparent defeat, that through it we can, we can muster up the will to, to live selflessly and thereby save ourselves in the sense of make life better. But yet, the orientation to thinking in terms principally of the resurrection as it affects our ability to make life better here, the thinking of things in terms of this life is fundamentally at odds with the orientation of the Christian worldview. Indeed, 
The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 tells us explicitly that if it is for this life, or in this life we hope in Christ alone, we are of all people most to be pitied. No, the Christian worldview does not principally look at this life. We don't principally think in terms of what must be done before we die. Why? Our orientation is principally the world to come. And our faith gives us what we need to live in the now in light of what we are confident about the world to come. Thus, as we look at the world, we take it as a given that life is hard and then you die and then comes judgment. That seems gritty. That seems bleak. But that is the Christian worldview of the state of affairs of this world. It is hard to live. You die. And then comes judgment. And so this is wherein the Christian faith enters the scene to give us what we need to face our todays. Namely, that in light of what has happened we can then face this knowing that the judgment can be endured because we will spend eternity in bliss in paradise forever. The Christian worldview enables us to look at the horrors and sufferings of today knowing that there is a future tomorrow. But yet, when the naturalistic or humanistic sentiments, convictions, and predilections encounter the faith, they cannot countenance the message of that cross. And consequently, because they cannot countenance the message of the cross, when you think of the resurrection, which is the cross's vindication, it likewise must be re-explained. Thus, you hear the constant dribble about the resurrection being a metaphor for hope born anew. Indeed, the message of the cross is offensive and foolish to the natural mind. The message of a bloody Savior seems offensive to our sensibilities. Why? Well, in large part, it's because I'm a sinner and I'm basically comfortable with my sin. You're a sinner and you're basically comfortable with your sin. Our sin fails to incite within us our own wrath at it. So because I can look at all my shortcomings, all my little oopsies, all my little I wasn't in my having my best day moments, and basically give myself a pass because I'm basically a good person, we then transfer that to God and think, if I'm basically okay with my sin, then surely God is okay basically with our sin as well. Because we are not incensed by sin, we find it offensive that God would be. But God is not us. God is perfectly holy and just. And justice demands that sin be punished. But yet, 
God loves us. And so in his wisdom, he devised a plan in which the love of God for his people might prevail over the wrath of God without the holiness of God being compromised. And what was that way? It was the way of voluntary self-sacrifice as our substitute on the cross. The idea of a substitute goes far back in Scripture. It's apparent in the earliest pages of Genesis where Abel is, is the first one sacrificing an animal. And it, inherent in the concept of a sacrifice is the identifying of myself with this animal and this animal with me. And so I, I, I have done wrong and the, I have offended God and so something has to die. And this animal then becomes the substitute for the worshiper. The concept of substitution is throughout the pages of Scripture. And it finds its culmination in Jesus. The one who came to save his people from their sins. The one to give his life as a ransom for many. The one who came as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He came as our substitute. That means he endured the penalty that we deserved. He died in our place. John Stott, in his classic work, The Cross of Christ, and if you don't have that, I strongly urge you to go get it. Uh, John Stott, The Cross of Christ, simple title. But in it, among other things, he, he looks at the book of Romans, he looks at the New Testament, and he shows us the four basic categories or arenas in which Christ's work demonstrates an aspect of our need. So for example, there's the language of the temple. That is, in regards to God, God is angry at the infraction of his commandments. And so Jesus then meets that need by being our propitiation. That is to say, Jesus takes away the wrath of God, leaving him favorably disposed. There's the language of the courtroom, namely that there's a law that has been broken and justice must be met. And so Jesus is our justification. He lived perfectly, he died innocently in our place as our substitute. Then there's the language of the marketplace in which things are bought and sold. And we had been bought and sold under the dominion of Satan. And so we were ransomed, we were redeemed by the blood of Jesus. And finally, there's the language of the family in which there should be Love and warmth and acceptance and safety. But no, the relationship with God was fractured, hostile, filled with animosity and hostility. And Jesus came to be our peace. And so in him, we are reconciled to God the Father. Now, we look at that and we say, well... 
you know, I'm basically fine. I, I don't need all that. No. The bloody man on the cross is God's rebut of your protestations of all your best deeds. You on your best days, your works are likened to filthy rags. On my best days, I'm like a leper. On my best day, I am nothing. You see, we are utterly and absolutely dependent on the cross. On the cross, Jesus paid it all. He didn't just die to make your salvation possible. He died to secure and to procure and to accomplish your salvation. And so, we must keep our eyes on the cross. Because the minute we take our eyes off that cross, we, we will inevitably lapse into one form of legalism or another. We'll either say, oh, I, I need to do X, Y, and Z. Or, oh, it's because of my profession. It's because of my attendance at church. It's because of how much I drop in the offering plate. Whatever. Because sin is at work within us, we must, we must keep our eyes on the cross. You see, the cross was not defeat, as some would have you believe. You know, the whole, the cross is defeat and, and the resurrection is victory. No, no, the cross was the victory. It was at the cross where, where everything that God's law had against you is nailed. The cross is where all of the powers and principalities that stood against you were put to open shame. At the cross, we were brought to peace with God. And so the cross is victory. Now, I just said all that. How do I know? How do we know? Because of the resurrection. You see, the cross was victory, but the resurrection was the victory proclaimed, demonstrated, and vindicated publicly by God. The resurrection is the vindication of the divine purpose for Jesus' death. It is proof positive that everything Jesus did on the cross was accepted in God's sight. The resurrection is God's seal of approval on what Jesus did so that we can have utmost confidence that when Jesus says, he who the Son sets free is free indeed. And all of that's true because of the resurrection. So, in light of the fact that your salvation from start to finish has been accomplished on the cross, verified, demonstrated, signed, sealed, and delivered in the resurrection, 
How should we live this side of the cross? How should we live? Should we call our lawyer every time something doesn't go our way? Should we get mad and think about how I'm going to get even with every person who crosses me? What should we do? I don't know. Maybe, maybe be like the apostles where they're unjustly beaten and thrown in jail. And what do they do in the book of Acts consistently? What are they doing? They're singing and praising. In this book right here, Philippians, a jail letter, a prison epistle. It's this letter where Paul knows that he's going to go give a testimony and, and the outcome is unclear and he's very well aware that he could live or die. And what does he say? To live is Christ. To die is gain. My only concern is that whether by living or my dying, I may make him look lovely. <coughs> you see, how are we to live? Well, in light of the resurrection, we should live in the joyous confidence of hope. That should earmark every single day of our life. The joyous confidence of hope. Why? Because we know that the grave is not the end. So a good half the world's population lives in utmost terror of the grave. They're subject to all sorts of ideas and, and they absolutely fear death. Another half of the population tries to tell themselves, don't worry about it. And so they live their days in hedonistic self-fulfillment. And that leaves us. Sorry, that was a, that was a yogi bearism anyway. Sorry. But that leaves us. We can live in a world in which there is suffering, rampant selfishness, and sorrow. We can live in a world not seeking our best life now, not seeking our will to be done in every situation. Why? Because we know that the grave is not the end. And God has promised us a share in the inheritance of the glory of Christ. And so we can face anything that comes our way knowing that the worst they can do merely hastens our presence into that which we have come in any way. So, why do we need the resurrection of Christ? Because it is the ground of our joyous confidence of hope. Let me give you seven brief statements about how the resurrection changes things for us and how it gives us that joyous confidence of hope. First, it's proof positive that your heavenly father loves you. The principal demonstration of God's love in scripture is he, he sent his son to die for you. And he raised him from the grave. He gave his most precious, precious son for you. And he raised him from the grave to prove that his son's work on your behalf was sufficient. He really truly does love you. Second, 
It's proof positive that your sins are forgiven. Now, now sit with that for just a minute. Your sins are forgiven. It's not how hard you beat yourself up. It's not how frequently those memories flood back into your mind. In Christ, your sins are forgiven. And the resurrection proves it. Third, his spirit has been poured out in our heart. Jesus said if he didn't go away, the comforter wouldn't come. So it was necessary for him to go away. And his resurrection from the dead proves that he was telling the truth. So think about this. You have the third person of the Trinity residing in you to comfort, to encourage, and yea, even to convict. Wow. You are a living temple of the holy God. That's amazing. Fourth, far from being meaningless, your life has great purpose. You are a part of the great movement of history. Jesus is building his church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so we are being built into a living temple. You, dear brother, dear sister, have a place in the very building that is being constructed. You are part of the great movement of history. Fifth, when death comes, it's a defanged lion because you will be at home with the Lord. Death can't take from you that which is most precious because Jesus is most precious. All death can do is be the portal into which you enter his presence. So don't fear death. Sixth, the resurrection of Christ demonstrates that death itself has been defeated. He has raided the stronghold of Satan. The bars have been torn off the door. He has the key to death in Hades. What does that mean? It means that death is not the final answer. The loved ones who have gone before, they are not trapped outside of the saving work of Christ. No. You will be with your loved ones. We will be with the saints in glory because death has been defeated. And lastly, you will rise again transformed. He spends, Paul spends an entire half chapter on this point. 1 Corinthians 15 is all about the resurrection. The first half is about Jesus' resurrection. The last half is about our resurrection. Do you understand that you will live again in a body? That we will occupy a new earth? But this time, the body you have will not be deteriorated with the ravages of age. 
You will not be missing limbs or memory or body parts of any kind. Your systems will function and you will be able to run and jump and frolic and play. You'll even be able to smell all those wondrous flowers and not worry about allergies. So reflect on that. Your resurrection body is not an eternity trapped in this broken down thing. The resurrection of Christ establishes that it is finished. Your salvation has been accomplished. And so now I can live in the midst of any kind of trouble. Workplace difficulty, family strife, health concerns, and I can say, let it come. Because the worst that can happen is I go to heaven sooner. The resurrection of Christ establishes the ground of our faith. It is absolutely and utterly essential as a fact. We serve, we worship a risen Savior. And just as he rose, so too will all those who die in him. What a glorious truth. That is why we need the resurrection. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for raising Christ up on the third day, vindicating his work, vindicating his claims, proving <clears throat> that you accepted as sufficient his substitutionary atonement rendered on our behalf. Thank you, Jesus, for being bloodied and battered for me. For in your bloodiness being sufficient for my complete salvation, grant that I, grant that we would trust not in, not in one might of our own doing, but that we would throw ourselves wholeheartedly at the foot of the cross and serve you faithfully evermore, confident because of your resurrection. It's in your name we pray, O Lord. Amen.